All right. Thank you, Steve, and thank you so much to the band. It is really, really good to be back with you today. I, uh, I did a little history digging through my notes, and I, I realized this is the third time now that I've had the chance to come and share with you while Mark was away at camp. And you know what that means? I'm an Aggie three times. That's a tradition, <laughs> right? And it means that I'm going to be really eccentric about it in a hopefully odd but charming way. And so, uh, Mark, if you're listening, you're forewarned. So, um, now today, uh, we're about halfway through John's gospel, and, um, and we're going to actually encounter today one of Jesus's I am statements. And there are seven of these in the gospel of John. We've already seen two. In John 6, Jesus said he was the bread of life. And in John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Next week, we'll see that Jesus says he is the good shepherd. In John 11, he's the resurrection and the life. In John 14, the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, in our passage today... Jesus presents himself as the door, the door to the sheepfold. And if you think about those six I am statements I listed there, you might think, wow, the door. That's kind of anticlimactic. And I might be tempted to think that my good friend Mark gave me that one on purpose, (laughs) right? Um, But but no, not really, because as I began to study the 10 verses that we're going to look at today, I was just stunned at how much Jesus is really saying here. And I'm so excited to share it with you. So today we're going to look at Jesus as the doorway to three things. First, Jesus is the door to God. Jesus is the door to freedom. And Jesus is the door to abundant life. Now, I want to tell you up front, disclaimer, I'm going to spend almost all my time on point number one. Because that way, like when I'm 20 minutes into this deal, please don't panic and be like, he's not even at point two yet. I promise. <laughs> point two and three are going to go quick. I think they flow naturally from point one. I told my wife yesterday that as I was studying and preparing, I was having to cut some things. I said, I really want to try to get it down to 25 minutes. And she looked at me and said, 20 would be better. And so, um, <laughs> so uh, I'm probably going to disappoint you, dear. I'm just warning. Um, but uh, before we get started unpacking this passage, we have to set the stage a bit and talk about the setting and the context. And I think it's important to remember that when you open your Bibles, those chapter divisions and even those verses, those aren't original to the text. They were added later, and they're helpful because they help us find passages in our Bible. They help us memorize Scripture. But sometimes they lead us to believe that there's breaks in the action that probably aren't really there. And that's one of the cases today as we move from chapter 9 into chapter 10. And so remember last week, Mark talked to us all about chapter 9. And there was a story there where Jesus encountered a blind man on the Sabbath, and he healed that man. And that made the Pharisees, the religious leaders, really mad. They didn't like him healing on the Sabbath. And, um, and I think that our story in John 10 follows right onto that. There's really no gap in time. It's the same audience. And in fact, what we saw last week was that word reached Jesus that these Pharisees were so angry at this man because he acknowledged. He said, hey, I was blind. Now I see The man who healed me must be from God. And that made him mad. And they basically excommunicated him. They kicked him out of the synagogue. I mean, the poor guy, right? He spends his whole life blind, and he can see now, and now he's kicked out of church. 
So Jesus finds him, and he finds him in an environment where there's some Pharisees standing around, and he approaches the man. And that's where I want to pick up today. I want to go back to John chapter 9 and just read for you the last few verses there, starting in verse 35 of John 9. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So folks, the tension here is really high, right? Because Jesus just told men who thought they were the most righteous that their condition was exactly the opposite, that their guilt remains on them. And that sets the stage for chapter 10. And I want to move right now into chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus continues talking to these Pharisees. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, I want to read all the way to verse 6 for an important reason, because Jesus tells us something in verse 6 that's going to help us interpret verses 1 through 5, and that's that he's using a figure of speech. More specifically, he's using metaphor or symbolism. And I hate to take us back to high school English, but we do need to ask the question, what do these metaphors mean? What do these symbols mean? And this leads to at least five questions that I think that we need to answer. Who are the sheep? What is the sheepfold? Who or what is the door? Who are the thieves and robbers? And who is the shepherd? And to answer these, we got to understand a little bit more about first century shepherding in the ancient Near East. Now, the sheepfold that Jesus was describing would have been contained within the town. So maybe adjacent to a building or maybe between two buildings. And picture a pen with a single gate. And after a long day of taking care of sheep, taking them from grazing area to grazing area, the shepherds would bring their flocks back to town and they would put them in the sheepfold. And so what would happen is there were multiple flocks of sheep in a single sheepfold. And there would be a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper's job would be to watch over those multiple flocks at night and, and just protect them. And that way the shepherds could go and get some food and get some rest so that they could start everything over the next morning. Now, um, the thing is, we live in Texas. Thank God. And uh, Texas, though, is cattle country. And that's awesome if you enjoy a good steak or smoked brisket. 
But I think sometimes our knowledge and familiarity with cattle ranching actually does a disservice when we start to think about sheep herding because it's very different, especially the way it's practiced in modern times compared to ancient times. Because see, cattle ranching doesn't help us understand much about sheep herding. And if we assume they're similar, we'll make some mistakes. So with cattle, you have to drive them. That's what cowboys do, right? With a good cattle dog. They move them along in the drive. But that's a very Western and modern thing. See, in the ancient Near East, the, sheep, her, the shepherd led the sheep, and they followed the voice of their shepherd. And so what would happen after the shepherd had rested, he would come to the sheepfold in the morning to get his sheep, and he would literally call forth the sheep. And some people say they would even call them by name. So they had names for their sheep. And the sheep would recognize the voice of the shepherd, and they would come out. What about the other sheep that weren't of his flock? Well, they didn't recognize the shepherd's voice, so they stayed where they were until their shepherd showed up and called them forth. That's important. And hold on to that, because we're going to come back to it. But what about those metaphors? Well, the people are the sheep. That's you and me. And if you know anything about sheep, it's not the most flattering picture. Because sheep are pretty helpless. They wander into trouble regularly. They need constant care, attention, protection. I don't know about you, but when I consider me, that sounds just about right. So what about the sheepfold? That one's a little bit harder to understand, but if you look at the whole passage of John chapter 10, it becomes pretty clear. The sheepfold is representative of Judaism. And remember that the first Christians were Jewish, and Jesus was calling his followers from, from within Judaism. And we know this because if we look down in verse 16, Jesus tells the Pharisees, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Well, what, what is this other sheep? It's Gentiles. So I will thank God for verse 16, because that's, that's me and most of us in here, I would venture to say. And it was always God's plan. Remember what he told Abraham, that, he, that all the nations in the earth would be blessed through him. Well, if people are the sheep, and the sheepfold here is Judaism, then Jesus is the shepherd, right? That one's obvious. That's an easy one. And you're correct. Jesus is the shepherd. But that's not where Jesus goes first. He goes somewhere else first. And look with me again at verse 7 of chapter 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is the door. He's the door to pasture, the door to life, the door to God. Now, this was pretty offensive, what Jesus had just told the Pharisees. And see, they didn't get his figure of speech before, but what he was starting to throw down now, they were understanding exactly what he was saying. He's telling them that not only is he the door, he's telling them they're the thieves and robbers. See, shepherd imagery was not new to these Pharisees. 
Remember, they knew their scripture, and their scripture was what we refer to as the Old Testament. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And I bet most of you are familiar with at least the first verse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That's right. But see, shepherd imagery was important in other areas as well because God had told the leaders of Israel, and that's what the Pharisees were supposed to be. They were supposed to be the leaders. He had told them to shepherd his people. And time and time again, they had failed to do so. And nowhere is this more clear than in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Here God is critical of the spiritual leaders of Israel for not caring for the weak and sick, and indeed for exploiting his people for their own gain. And I want to take us to Ezekiel chapter 34, and I want to read several verses there and show you how God promised to respond to that kind of of circumstance. So I want to start in Ezekiel 34 chapter 10, and just listen to the words. I tell you, they're quite amazing. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing lands. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Listen to this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the gospel is not right there in the Old Testament. Because that that we just read, folks, that is our Savior. That is our Savior spoken of by a prophet 600 years before he walked the face of the earth. And it is good news. And the Pharisees knew by now that Jesus was saying to them that he was the one that Ezekiel had promised. And they were the shepherds to whom God was opposed. So if Jesus is the door to God, and what he says there is he's the door to salvation, that raises an important question and we need to spend some time to answer it. Why don't all the sheep in the sheepfold follow him? Why don't all the sheep in the sheepfold follow his voice? And sadly, the truth is, is that some people will follow thieves and robbers. And so what does this look like today? Well, I'll tell you that it can take a lot of different forms. So you can have salvation by rule keeping. This was the Pharisees way, right? This is the, 
I can do more good than bad and the scales, they might tip in my balance and God will have to give me favor because I've obeyed more than I've disobeyed. And maybe he can just look past those, those indiscretions. This is the system of every religion that I know about besides Christianity. And it's exhausting. What about salvation by finding your true self? This is perhaps, uh, there's perhaps no greater sin in our culture than to fail to follow your heart, right? Be true to yourself, follow your heart. Can I just be honest and tell you that's horrible advice? See, this cannot be trusted. Scripture says this is desperately sick, and who can understand it? And Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, we could also, in addition to salvation by rule keeping or salvation by finding your true self, we could have salvation through money, salvation through politics, salvation through relationships. And the thing about these three things are they're either kind of neutral to good. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, wait a minute, you said politics. That is not good. Maybe, fair enough. But I will say that civic engagement to try to help bring about policies and laws that lead to human flourishing is a good thing. And we should be engaged in it. Money's a neutral thing. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money's a tool. It's how you use it that matters. And what about relationships? Well, outside of the gift of His Son, the best gift that I can think of that God gives us are Relationships. The relationships that he gives a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband or children to their parents and parents to their children or the relationships between a dear, dear friend. But can I tell you, can I, can I, can I plead with you? Don't make these things your saviors. You see, you can't go to someone you love and go there for the approval that you need, for the justification that you need, for the significance that you need. They cannot bear that. They were not made to. But I have good news that there is one who can. And his name is Jesus. And see, Jesus is not just the door to God. He's the only door to God. I think it's implicit here, but Jesus says it clearly a couple chapters later in John 14. He's going to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said the same thing in Acts chapter 4. He said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, i got to tell you, in this pluralistic society that we live in, this is perhaps the most offensive thing that you can say. Because they're going to say, hey, 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 
Surely not. I mean, you've got your way to God, and that's great for you. That's your truth, right? But this person over here, they've got their way to God, and that works for them. How can you say Jesus is the only way? Maybe, maybe there's multiple ways. But friends, if there was another way besides sending his only begotten son to hang on a Roman cross, don't you think he would have taken it? Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass. But the answer came back, there is no other way. And he said, your will be done. The reason that there's no other way is because we don't just need a helper or a prophet or a role model or a path or a guide or some coach. We need a savior. We need a substitute. We need someone to stand in our place because our sin has separated us from a holy God. And only one who was fully God and fully man can stand in the gap. See, some people will still say, you know what? That still sounds pretty arrogant to me. You think you've discovered the one way to God. And I got to tell you, it would be. It would be pretty arrogant. Except for one thing. Grace. Grace. See, we bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. God does all the work. He sought us out. He called us by name. We hear His voice and we follow. And you might say, well, why do we hear? Why do we follow? Is it because we're smarter? Is it because we're better? Is it because we're more worthy, more wise? No. No. It's because we belong to Him. How do I know that? Look with me down at verses 25 and 27 of John chapter 10. By this point, the Pharisees are coming at Jesus pretty hard again. And listen to how he responds. He says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. See, the Apostle Paul said that we were his before the foundation of the world. And I cannot think of better news. I cannot. It's the one thing that I know that tells me that tomorrow I'll wake up and still believe. Well, let me get to that second point. I promise I'll be fast. If we look at verse 9, Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Two things here. In and out right? And finding pasture. Well, what's the significance of coming in and coming out? It's freedom. It's freedom. 
This is what Jesus talked about in chapter 8, where he said he, the key to freedom was abiding in him, being his disciple, because it's the truth that sets you free. And know that the sheep go in and out, and what do they find? They find pasture. The kind of freedom that Jesus offers leads to provision. It leads to sustenance. It leads to care. What does that look like practically for us? Well, we have to follow his voice and flee the voice of strangers. Also, how do we recognize his voice? You know, I've been told that when the Secret Service, who work in the area of counterfeit money, need to hone their skills, you know what they don't do? They don't go study all the different kinds of counterfeit money. They study real money. They become so familiar with real money that the counterfeits become obvious. That's what we do. Because, see, we have the Word. We have the true voice. And we study it individually in small groups with other believers, and here corporately with each other. And then finally, that third point, in verse verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now i got to tell you, this verse right here has been abused by many thieves and robbers. Many false teachers have told people that this verse means that the Christian can expect a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. It's a lie. The New Testament is clear that this life will be marked by suffering. And then so you might say, well, what's the point? Well, John's making the same point he's been making from the beginning. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. What did he tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you must be born again. What did he tell the Samaritan woman at the well? That he would give her living water that would become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And after feeding the 5,000, Jesus said, I am the living bread. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. See, the abundant life is eternal life. And you might say, that's great. I, I love that. I really do. But you know what? That's out there. Can I tell you something? Eternal life starts right now. That's right. See, we have certainty now that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been raised to new life now. We have communion with Jesus now. Jesus is interceding with the Father on our behalf now. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places right now. Did you know that? This isn't your seat. You're seated with Him in heaven now. The band's going to come, but I want to finish up by saying a couple of things to two groups of people today. First... To the believers, to the Christ followers, I want to encourage you, can you rest in the good news that Jesus has called your name? See, he does not make mistakes. And he is a perfect Savior. 
In verse 28 of this very chapter, he's going to say of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ follower, he's got you. He's got you. Whatever your situation today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, he's got you. Secondly, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Here's the deal. I don't know either, but I'm glad you're here. And I know it's not an accident. And so I want to ask you a question. Do you hear his voice today? Are you weary of self-salvation? Do you hear the one that said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Today is the day of salvation. There's no magic words, no cards to sign, just a conversation between you and God of repentance and faith. Repentance that says, I'm a sinner. My way doesn't work. I was going this way. I need to go that way. And I need a Savior. God help me. Faith that Jesus is that Savior. That He is the substitute who lived the life that we should have lived, but we didn't. And that He died the death that we earned and deserved in our place. That's it. And it's available today. John said at the end of his gospel, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There it is. The offer of eternal life. What could be more important today? Thank you.